Good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, I was over at Hope Church, uh, again, filling in for Will while he's on sabbatical, and they had a kind of a rolling in crowd this morning. When I started, there was, what, maybe five or six people there? It was looking like we had the wrong time, Chris. And, but by the end, we had, we had a church going on there. Um, so it's, it's good to be with you this morning. I do want to uh, recognize, acknowledge that we have special visitors with us today. Our district superintendent, uh, Pastor Brad, is here with his wife, Debbie, if you want to welcome them. No? No applause? Oh, okay. We'll work, we'll work on that, so. Um, and this being the first time that I've been here that we've had a, a DS visit with us, um, I didn't get a chance to kind of lay out the ground rules, so we want to be on your best behavior. Um, every amen is a dollar, every hallelujah is two dollars, right? So, um, <laughs> of course it's Mary. Um, as we start our, our message this week, uh, I need to confess something, and many of you probably already know this about me, but I'm a bit of a nerd. Do you guys know that? Or, well, no? Yeah. <laughs> so my favorite movies, I'll throw it as one movie, but favorite movies is the Lord of the Ring series. Do I have any other Lord of the Ring type fans? Maybe, or maybe you like the books better, I, whatever, but I don't want to get in the debate of books versus. But uh, Lord of the Rings, like... There's uh, the premise of the, that series, not The Hobbit, that's a whole nother, nother thing, let's not get that confused, but the Lord of the Rings series, the premise starts with the good people getting the ring of power, right? So, so the people that would be on the good side, not the evil side, but the good side, end up with this ring of power. And, and so very early on in the first movie, there's this council that is gathered together to talk about what are we going to do now that we have acquired this ring of power. Now this ring of power, if you don't know the, the lore behind it all, has done a tremendous amount of damage, caused a great amount of suffering. It was a weapon of the enemy, right? It controlled all the other powers in the, in the, in the realm, and it's been used to create great harm and great suffering in the hands of evil. Now there's some in this council, in this group, that said now that we have it, we can use this ring, this power for good. Right, there's, there's a, a moment where one of the more bold leaders in the group stands up and says, it is a gift. Let us use this weapon of our enemy against them. And then the wise sages of the group, the, the wizard and the, the leader of the elves stands up and says, it cannot be worn by us. It will corrupt, it, it, cannot be, it cannot be wielded by us, it cannot accomplish what you think it's going to accomplish. The, this thing that is, is, is evil cannot be wielded for good. And so what you must do with this evil corrupted power is not wear it, not use it against those that you call enemy, but to take it back to where it came from and throw it into the, the mountain, throw it into the volcano, to, to let it go. This is what you do with corrupt evil powers, you let go of it. And obviously for many reasons, uh, Lord of the Rings is this big epic grand story, but that's the, the root of that whole story is what do we do with power, this ring that represents this great power. And the message is that corrupted worldly power cannot create righteous results. It cannot be overcome by more force. There was a, a one moment a very um, blunt, direct, not so subtle member of the group decides I'm just going to smash this ring with my axe, I'm just using force, I'm just going to destroy this evil thing just by sheer willpower and force, and it doesn't work. This evil can only be destroyed, this power can only be destroyed at the source by letting it go. 
We've been in a series, you can see, uh, called the Upside Down Kingdom. As we every week hold up the kingdom of God as presented in the Gospel of Mark and hold it up against the kingdoms of the world and compare and contrast. And I say this every week, but I, I hope that you, as we continue through the series, have started to realize that when we hear the message of Jesus, we're like, well, this is backwards, this is upside down, this is unfamiliar. But by the time we get to the end of this series, that when you compare the two kingdoms, you will realize that it's the kingdoms of the world that are upside down, distorted, backwards. And it's the kingdom of God that is right and true and the standard of all things that are good. But to understand what's going on with kingdoms, to understand this language and the imagery that we find in the gospels and in the, in the scriptures, we, we need to understand that, that kingdom is a system of power, right? Like, so we live in, in, in a place that's not a kingdom, and, and so when we hear the word kingdom, we might think of a place, like the United Kingdom. Oh, here it is on the map. This is where I'm gonna go. It's a, it's a place on a map. But at the root of a kingdom is the reality that it's a system of power. Who is in charge? Who gets to decide? Who gets to shape things the way that it's supposed to be? A kingdom is a very particular way of organizing authority over people. And so we don't live in, the, in a kingdom that way, and so we may not be familiar with some of the language or concepts of, of these systems of power the way that the earliest Christian audience may have been or the participants in these stories may have been. But while we don't live in a kingdom, we are definitely familiar with systems of power, are we not? We have governments, and whether you're talking like federal with the division of power amongst different branches, you know, you got your legislative, executive, and judicial branches, right? I had a civics quiz there just a moment ago. I didn't mean to go into that, but then I started, I'm like, I better, I better name them right. So we have our, our different divisions of, of the, uh, the federal government, and then you have state governments that, that have different rules and powers than the federal, and then local governments, and, right? So we understand how power and authority is disseminated and, and how it governs people, right? But beyond just governments, um, maybe you're familiar with the company org chart where you work, you know who the, the boss is, you know who, who you report to, you know how the divisions are, are set up, and if you got a promotion, you would move into this division, or right, you're familiar with the company org charts. Or maybe you're more familiar with, with school districts. There's a school board, there's administration, there's teachers, right? Where's, how's the power, who controls what, who's deciding what is taught, who's deciding what happens in these classrooms? And, and then more lately, where there's been a highlight you know, if you're watching on social media, you know, parents are in that mixed conversation a whole lot more these days too. So it's a system of power. Who, who is going to dictate, who's going to decide what goes on in these schools? And obviously, churches are systems of power as well. Our, as a Nazarene church, we have a manual that, that decrees, you know, who does what. This is who the authority of this lies with. This is how this authority, this is what a pastor does. This is what a board does. This is what... Right? It, this is what a DS does. <laughs> it actually, it doesn't actually say that. We've had those conversations. It doesn't actually tell them what to do. Um, but over the years, I've been part of a lot of organizations, whether it be in church-related stuff or in, in secular work or, you know, marketplace work. And I've heard a lot of criticisms, critiques, commentary on leadership, management, administration, right? You've probably been a part of these conversations as well. Um, and over those years as well, I've tried to stay informed of what's going on in, in government. You know, I try to stay attuned to what, I don't want to be ignorant of these things, so I try to stay tuned to what's going on in government. Um, and with there, obviously, you hear a lot of criticisms and critiques of government at, at all levels. 
And through these, these listening, hearing people talk about it, complaining, critiquing, all that, I've come to a conclusion. And you can disagree with this if you want, but this is the premise for the sermon, so if you disagree, it's going to send things way off. Um, I've come to the conclusion that people aren't as upset with the systems of power as I thought they were. They weren't as upset about the system of power as much as they were with their place within that system. Let me give an example so I can help kind of flush that out a little bit. So it's, it's, it's people that, that don't necessarily want to get rid of the system. They don't want to reorganize. They don't want to throw the whole thing out. They just want a different seat on the bus, right? They don't hate the ring of power per se. They just are upset that they don't have it. So the example I want to share is when I was in college, I started working at a local warehouse. I was a guy that put boxes on trucks. It was like entry level. It was hard work. We were expected to work fast, hard, accurate, right? And the complaint on the shipping docks was that we were just numbers, right? Like our boss doesn't even know our name. They just want us to, to get a lot of boxes on the truck without breaking a whole lot of stuff. And that was the complaint. We were just faceless numbers in the system. And in a place like that, high volume, high energy, very demanding, there was a lot of turnover. And not just with the employees, but with the management. And so every time management positions came open, they always looked to promote from within. And so many of us that started out on the shipping docks had the opportunity to work our way up the ranks. By the time I left that first facility, I was uh, a manager of logistics, leading a team in filling orders for 150 stores that we serviced. Um, but as we moved up the ranks, these people that used to sit in the break room commiserating about being just a faceless name, you know, no name, no, just a number. Um, I saw that some of my coworkers treated their employees the exact same way that they complained about. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever experienced it? We sit in the break room and we complain that, well, they just, they don't care about me. They just want me to produce something. And then the minute that that person gets some authority, gets some power, it's like, I don't care who you are, just get those boxes on the truck, right? Sometimes it's even worse than what they experienced. And so this is how I came to that conclusion that I stated a minute ago. These people weren't upset that, they, that people were being treated that way. They weren't upset that the system functioned that way, reduced people to numbers on an ID badge or a time clock. But they were upset that they were treated that way. They didn't want to get rid of the system, but they just wanted to get to a different point in that system where they benefited from it, Right? So people who would talk about what they would do differently if they were in charge have a tendency, not always, but have a tendency to embrace radical change a lot less when they are given the authority and benefit from the status quo. So for example, I, and I don't know why this image came to mind, it, it will, for you, the younger folks that are here, it'll date you, for the older folks, it'll be like, I remember that. Um, there was a, a rock band before my time, but they were still around, they're still around today, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, rock bands start out as like against the, against the, rage against the machine, like, or, you know, against the system, against the man, fight the power, that type of thing. Like it's radical, it's rebellious. That was the appeal of it. And over time they mass great audiences. And I remember the scandal, mid-90s, when a Rolling Stone song was used to introduce the Microsoft Windows release. And the cry from my parents' generation, again, not trying to date myself, of, of them being sellouts, right? Do you guys remember this at all? Like, this sticks in my, I don't know why it sticks in my mind, 
But this rock and roll band, which was supposed to be this iconic thing, lost credibility because it was selling computer software. Right? And, that, and that's what happens. These, these rock stars who are fighting the power suddenly get stadiums that are sponsored by corporate interests. You know, they're selling albums and tickets on radio stations owned by massive media corporations. And suddenly they lose their radical edge a little bit. And there's a lot of other ways we can pick on that, but the, the rock thing was kind of an obvious example for me. But people despise their place in the system more than they actually dislike the system. So all that to say this, this is a really long way of getting to the introduction. As we look at Israel's hope for Messiah, as we look at the disciples' expectation of what Jesus was all about, and as we look at the scripture's announcement of a coming kingdom, we can observe that, well, the prophets, you know, we read the, the prophets, they really expected a radical new king with a radically different kingdom that comes from God. They expected it to be so radically different that, that it was unlike anything the world had experienced. The prophets did that, but most people, even Jesus' disciples, were simply hoping for a better seat on the bus, a new position, a better position in the kingdom of this world. They really just wanted their guy to be in charge. They wanted their guy to control the armies, to make the rules, to give them the power. They honestly didn't have a problem with the worldly kingdoms. They simply had a problem with their place in those kingdoms. They were tired of Israel being the servant kingdoms to the other kingdoms of the world. This desire for new positions of power and status show up in a lot of stories in scripture. Like it, it, it's a frequent theme, but maybe none more obvious than our scripture for today. We'll be in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, uh, Mark 10, 35 through 45. And again, just as a reminder, uh, it's on the screen, but if you don't have a Bible, these are on the, underneath the chairs. Not only use it for today's service, but take it home with you. I want you to have a Bible if you don't have one. Um, that's yours. But Mark 10, 35 through 45, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptized baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now pray with me, if you will. Father, we again come to you grateful for your word. Not just your, your word preserved on pages in black and white ink, um, words preserved over time and tra through translation and language. We are truly grateful for those words but we're grateful mostly for your word that has become flesh and dwelt among us. 
your word that is alive, that speaks to our hearts and to our minds, that through your Holy Spirit it transforms and empowers us to live as you would have us to live. May this time together give you glory and point the world to the redemptive possibilities in your son's name. And it's in that name we pray, amen. So our scripture this morning comes, like I said, from the Gospel of Mark. Now, a key part of that title is gospel, right? It's not just the book of Mark, it's the gospel of Mark. And so to understand what's going on in the story, we have to understand the larger context, that this is coming out of a gospel. Now, in some religious circles, gospel has become a formula of a verse here, a verse there, a verse here, and somehow you like follow this and suddenly you're going to heaven when you die. And that's become what we mean by gospel, but when when they say that Mark or Matthew or Luke or John are gospels, it's a bigger picture than just a formula, right? It's a story of a king. You see, gospel wasn't a word that the the church invented. Um, Gospel means good news, and when conquering rulers would invade and take over a new territory, they would send messengers into this land because these people didn't know the king that is now ruling their land. And so they would send these messengers in with a message that said, good news, you're under new management, right? You have a new king. And so these gospels functioned as an introduction to your new ruler. It served as a background information to this king that is now in charge of the place in which you dwell, right? So a gospel was an announcement, you have a new ruler, now let us tell you about him. He was born this way, he lived this way, he did these types of things. This is where he comes from, this is his family, this is his traditions. And they always have some sort of fantastic, uh, amazing claims to authority, right? uh, Jesus performing signs and miracles validates his claim as authority. It it points to the fact that he is this king. It it validates his authority. Um, the Gospels announce what makes this king unique, what makes this king special, why this is an upgrade over your previous ruler. Um, and so that's what's happening in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's announcing the world, all of creation, is under new management. Right? And so this story today comes in the middle of this Gospel, this announcement, this story. And if you've ever read Mark from beginning to end, it doesn't take terribly long. If you read it as a story, as you read it as a single announcement, you'll realize that Mark is in a hurry. Like, things happen immediately in Mark. There's not a whole lot of, well, then we kind of wandered over here for a minute. Like, sometimes you can get lost in the whirlwind. If you're reading intently, sometimes you might even feel, like, out of breath. Like, I can't keep up with the story. It's just on to the next thing. Mark is in a hurry to get where we're going. So the question is then, where are we going? Where is Mark in a hurry to take us, his audience? And the Gospel of Mark slows down and stops at one point. His destination is the cross and the empty tomb. He wants us to get there too. He wants us to follow him. We're in a hurry to get to the cross and to get to the empty tomb. Jesus, as the crucified and resurrected Son of God, is now King of all creation, says Mark ruling the kingdom of God at the Father's right hand. That's the culmination of this gospel story. And in the middle of the story, just a slice out of it is is Mark chapter 10 where John and James are asking to be on Jesus' right and left in his glory. Now this is a kingdom image. Again, like I said, we won't understand what's going on here unless we understand the backdrop of kingdom, the concepts of kingdom. So when Jesus is, is crowned king, 
John and James are asking to be next to him, right? Jesus asked them, what do you want? And they basically said, we'd like to be your vice president and your secretary of state. Kingdom is a system of power, and the closer you are to the king, the more access you have to power, the more status, the more influence you have, right? So they wanna be right there with Jesus. They think they're on their way to Jerusalem to go and defeat the Romans, to kick out the corrupt rulers, to kick out the the, the wrong leaders, to boot them out and to take over. Not because they think empires or kingdoms are bad, but because they think the wrong one is in charge. It's not a matter of systems being bad, but it's a matter of, of who's running the thing. They aren't upset with the system, they just want a different spot on the org chart, maybe a little bit closer to the top. They want those positions of power and influence. And Jesus responds to them, and I I love this, Jesus is always asking questions. And he says, can you drink this cup? That was a weird question. But the cup image shows up elsewhere in the Gospels. It shows up with Jesus praying in the garden, praying for God to take this cup from him. Cup, in in Jesus' language, is is about suffering. It's about enduring uh, pain and suffering and judgment condemnation he says can you receive the judgment and suffering it will take to get us where we're going and then he says can you be baptized with the same baptism Jesus was baptized by John in the wilderness he was he was not mainstream in the temple he wasn't a part of the religious system in the temple he was out in the wilderness and the voice of God shows up so we know that like God's out in the wilderness too but but he's not a part of the religious establishment. And so he's saying, can you be baptized in the same manner as an outsider? You're gonna be vulnerable to these religious, powerful men that have colluded with the Roman rulers. Can you be baptized into that baptism? And, and, and baptism for us is, as the church is a, a technical term. It means we fill up a, a tank full of water and we, we put people in it and they confess their faith in Jesus and they pledge their allegiance to the King Jesus and they, and they say, my identity is in Christ now. And so it's a technical thing. But the word for baptism, the, the core word, the, the, the word that we get the concept of baptism from, literally means completely submerged, like dunked, completely underwater, right? And so what he's asking is, can you be completely submerged? Can you be completely surrendered to this thing that I'm completely surrendered to? Can you be baptized in the way that I've been baptized into this? And they respond, James and John immediately say, yes, of course we can. Yeah, no problem, we got this. And they, res- you know, that was the response. And then Jesus says to them, you're right. You will share in my suffering. You will have your life defined by your commitment to me. You will be baptized in, in this way that I have called you to be. You will find yourself as outsiders to the temple. You will be vulnerable. You will be exposed to the powerful and corrupted leaders of these worldly kingdoms. He says, you're right, but I... I'm not going to choose who's on my left and who's on my right. That's not for me to choose. Now the gospel story moves forward and this is where we're leaving kind of our text for today behind for a moment. The gospel story moves forward and Jesus is crowned and then lifted up above everyone on high and he's anointed as king of the Jews. They declare that. But when do those things happen? It happens on the cross. He's given a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. He's lifted up above everyone for all to see, but it's when he's nailed to a cross that he's lifted up. 
He's announced as king of the Jews, but they meant to do it in a mocking way. They meant to do it to put him down, to, to quell any further rebellion or resistance. And so if the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king, if Mark is telling the story of how Jesus becomes king of God's kingdom, the cross is the moment where all these promises come true. And who is on the left and on the right of Jesus in that moment when he's lifted up, crowned, and labeled king. It's two criminals. Many of us know this story, right? Criminal on his left, criminal on his right. What kind of kingdom has their king on a cross? What kind of king has criminals as his left and his right? So when we say that the kingdom of God is upside down, when we say it's, it's different, it's radical, I, I think even though we say that, we're, we're underestimating just how radically different, how how different than the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of God actually is. Because we find out in the story that Jesus was never on his way to Jerusalem to acquire power, to acquire status or control of worldly kingdoms. He wasn't going to be the new governor. He wasn't going to be the new emperor. He wasn't trying to rule those kingdoms. Acquiring power and status is a virtue in the kingdoms of this world, but not in the kingdom of God that is ruled by a crucified Jesus. And so this, this story can serve as a warning to us. When Christians search for worldly power, our faith be, can become a tool in service of idols and replace that intimate relationship that we can have with God through Jesus. I know that talking about church and power is, requires nuance. It can be complicated. I was actually more nervous to do that over at Hope because... You're filling in somebody else's pulpit and like you don't want to poke too many bears while the pastor's out on sabbatical. Um, but my concern as pastor and basically as a Christian today is this. The church, we are called to announce that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. Jesus is ruler. Jesus is in charge, right? That's the purpose of the church. We've been gathered together and given an identity in the name of Jesus to announce that he is king. We announce that through our actions, we announce that through our words, right? Like, we've talked about this through our generosity, through, through our relationships with others. We have been saved by King Jesus. We've been redeemed by King Jesus, gathered into community by King Jesus, equipped and empowered by King Jesus. We've been commissioned and sent by King Jesus to announce to all of creation that Jesus is Lord. He's our King. And we're not only to believe that Jesus is king, but we're to live under the authority of King Jesus. We are to point others to this authority and invite them to, to submit to the kingship, to the lordship of King Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, many of us are familiar with this. It says, go into all the world and make disciples, right? We're, as the church, called to go and help others become followers of Jesus. But the verse right before that, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, all power and authority has been given to me. This is core to the message. All power and authority on earth and in heaven has been given to Jesus. And then he sends them out to announce that message. My concern is the church has a long tradition, a habit of wandering away from the calling that Jesus has given us. And that message that Jesus is Lord what happens when we lose our way is that instead of inviting the world to receive Jesus as their king and submit to his authority, 
the church has a habit of demanding that the world understand that we are in charge and inviting people to submit to our authority. Instead of inviting the world to follow Jesus, we expect the world to follow us. Instead of inviting people to put their trust in Jesus as the king of God's kingdom, we have the tendency to grow more concerned with our ability to maintain control of worldly kingdoms. And so like John and James who are following Jesus to Jerusalem, thinking that when Jesus becomes king, we'll be the ruler of worldly kingdoms. We're gonna get worldly power. We're gonna be in charge of things. We're gonna control things. We're gonna dictate the way that the world works. But the problem is when we look around at worldly kingdoms today, when we look at, at systems of power today, when we look at the governments, we look at big business, we look at schools, we look at culture around us, we don't feel like we're in control, do we? I have so many conversations with people throughout the week about the world is, is, is not what it used to be. The world, like, it's terrifying. We're, we're afraid because it's not what it once was. The church is no longer the powerful influence it once was. We look at the, the worlds around us and we don't feel like we're in control and it terrifies us, or it bothers us at least. We're losing power and control in the kingdoms of this world. We, we go out and stand in public places and say, Jesus says, the Bible says, we're supposed to do this and the world just walks on by. We're like, don't you know who we are? <laughs> and so we find ourselves wanting, feeling like we need to have that power again. We need to be in control. We need people to listen to us when we tell them what needs to happen. And whether it's out of fear or out of ambition or so, some sort of combination of the, of the two, the church finds itself making its own mission, choosing its own mission. Jesus has said you're to go and announce his kingship, his lordship, and, and make followers of Jesus. But when the church loses its way, we have a tendency to make our primary purpose. Um, we assign ourselves the task of fighting for power and control in the kingdoms of this world. And to feel like we can win that battle, to feel like that, that we can someday regain power or control over the world, we think we have to use the weapons of the world. I mean, and maybe it's not a conscious choice, but we end up there some way or another because we, we realize, we ask ourselves the question, can you win a war by loving your enemy? Can you uh, win a war by forgiving your enemy? These are not great tools for fighting in worldly kingdom battles. And so we are tempted to compromise our Christian witness, our ability to point people to Jesus, our faithfulness to the teachings and commands of Jesus because we have accepted another mission. We've tried to acquire the positions of power in worldly kingdoms. And so rather than going into the world with an invitation to follow Jesus, Instead of going into the world and saying, Jesus is king, Jesus is in control, he has all power and authority, we go into the world and demand that the world recognize our authority in the kingdoms of this world. And the tragedy comes, comes here, I mean, there's a lot wrong with this, but the tragedy is we are tempted to use whatever power, whatever gifts, whatever resources, whatever abilities that God has given us. And we try to use those things to fight for control of worldly kingdoms. We use the very things that God has given us to equip us to announce that he is king, to change the message to say, follow us. So when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it certainly 
looked like he wasn't winning a battle for control of worldly kingdoms, does it? I mean, in that moment where he was nailed to a cross, he wasn't possessing of any powers in that moment, was he? Or when he was in the tomb, Jesus wasn't leading armies, he wasn't shaping laws, he wasn't guiding people, he didn't wield power when he was dead in a tomb. Jesus went to the cross without fighting a battle for worldly power. That wasn't his agenda. He went to Jerusalem not to conquer the worldly kingdoms. So when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, who did it look like was in control? Right? Who, from all appearances, who did it look like was in control of what was going on? Maybe the corrupted religious leaders? Maybe the powerful Roman leaders? I mean, Jesus showed up and now he's on a cross. It looks like they're winning. But who actually was in control? When Jesus was dead and buried in a tomb, who did it look like had power? But more importantly, who actually had the power? The resurrection shows us that, God, that even though God's people weren't sitting on thrones in worldly kingdoms, even though they didn't control the temple, even though they didn't run the government, even though they didn't sit on worldly thrones of power, God the Father was still in control. So Jesus teaches us in Mark 10, Christians are not to be focused on acquiring positions of power to lord it over each other. In verse 43, and I think we have a slide for this if you've got that available. Yep. Um, this is Jesus' response to his disciples when they said, we want to be in charge of something. He says, that's what Gentiles do. That's what the pagans do. That's what the world does, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. And I, and I, don't, want to, I don't want to let go unnoticed what happened to the, the other disciples when they found out what John and James were up to. Right? Did you notice what happened when the other, Jesus and Mark calls them the other ten, the ten, right? Found out that John and James were attempting to gain more power. They're over here having conversations with Jesus off the side. What, what happened to the other ten? Verse 41 says, the disciples got indignant with John and James. A quest for power in the community of Jesus follow, in the community of Jesus followers created division, conflict, hurt feelings, disruption of unity, disruption of peace, disruption of, of, of faith. It, it caused a division from the, the mission that they were on. And the same thing happens in churches when power is pursued. The desire to be in charge or to be in control or to be recognized as the greatest in the church creates all kinds of problems and it goes against the teachings of Jesus. And so the invitation and the challenge for us today, and, and the, the, again, Mark moves quick and he doesn't make any apologies for, for hitting us in the face with these gospel truths one right after another. The invitation for us today is to use whatever power, use whatever gifts, use whatever abilities and resources that God has given you Take inventory of them, recognize what they are, and then use them to serve others. They're not meant to be tools to help you build up the ladder to, to status and celebrity in the kingdom, but rather they're tools to equip you to serve the way that Jesus commands us to. And so our mission as Christians is not to conquer and rule the kingdoms of this world. Jesus has already done that. That's what happened on the cross. He conquered the enemy. He defeated the kingdoms of this world. That battle has been fought and Easter Sunday announced a winner, and it was Jesus. There's only one king, there's only one Lord, it's not me, it's not you, 
<laughs> it's Jesus. And so the greatest in the kingdom of God are not worried about ruling others. They're not worried about who's in charge. They are concerned with serving others. Worldly power can be an idol that will lead us away from Jesus. It can be an idol that will lead us outside of his teaching and outside of Jesus' commands. It can be an idol that will actually move us away from the life as citizens in God's kingdom. The quest for control in a church or status or power or whatever will lead to unhealthy Christians and unhealthy churches. Leadership positions in a church, for example, are positions of responsibility and service, not celebrity or privilege. And the truth is, and this is the core of what we're trying to talk about today, is that serving others is a required element in a disciple's life. It's a required element in a disciple's life. Serving others is part of being a citizen of God's kingdom. And it helps us live better as citizens of that kingdom, to live faithfully to the teachings of Jesus, to the commands of Jesus. But it also helps us, serving others helps us to let go of that desire to rule. It helps us to let go of that desire to control. It helps us to, to throw the ring of power into the, the fires of Mount Doom. It helps us to be content with the seat on the bus that we have. It helps us not to look at others and see them as competition, but to see them as somebody we can serve. It's a formative practice. And so that's the invitation for today. Use everything that God has given you to serve others. I want to invite you to pray with me as we conclude um, this message. Humble God, in Christ you were great amongst us by being our servant. You were first born amongst us by becoming a slave of all. You invite us to your table and you serve us as your guests. We rejoice to be here because in Jesus you gave us life. You gave us your life as a ransom for many. Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us as we sit at your right and your left hand as we share the cup that you drink. Our God, our King, in the power of your Holy Spirit, visit all who live under tyranny today. Lift up the hearts of your children who languish with loud cries and tears. Deal gently with those who are wayward, since in Christ you took on the mantle of our weakness. Inspire your church to become the high priest of all creation. Make your people perfect, complete through obedience. Hasten the day when heaven comes to earth and the world is full of your glory. For you are the ever one God, gracious Father, servant Son, gentle Spirit, Trinity of mercy and love. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.